Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. A reading from Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks, Scott. Uh, I kind of wanted to joke that I sent a letter to the IRS and said, I am sovereign over my whole being. I worked for my house, therefore... I don't have to pay this tax. I was joking. That was jo- the reading. Sorry. Uh, I can't pull my taxes out of a fish, though. Jesus has me on that one. All right, kiddos, if you want to head to Elevate, and I believe we also have EGC this morning, third, fourth, and fifth grade, where we walk through a good list of questions. And what I love about what I love, what we're going through, uh, the New City Catechism with uh, the kids is that it, it is a response to a question. And so they ask a question and then give the response to it. All right. So uh, a few weeks ago, we went, well, no, let me get, we got a couple things going on here. First, we have a new little cold of jelly. Yeah. Uh, Isaac Coldagelli was born May 28th, nine pounds, one ounce, Thelini and Brian are doing okay, uh, and uh, Isaac's hanging out with grandma and mom this morning, so we are excited for that, and welcome Isaac Coldagelli, uh, and he will, be, uh, he will be running these halls before too long, and then Noah is here. Uh, and we are excited about, oh, Noah's outside. All right, well, he's eating. All right. Um, well, I'll, I'll bring that uh, later when he, when he comes back in. Maybe it's too cold for him in here. Not a chance. All right. Um, so uh, I was excited to get out of May, right? We talked about lust, divorce, anger, all those fun topics in May. And I was like, oh, we'll this will be good to go. And then we get straight into retaliation. So if, if we, a, a few weeks ago when we talked about lust, uh, and, and you may have walked out of here and been like, oh, I can't believe that church, so, such conservatives talking about the danger of worshiping sex and sexuality, what a bunch of fundies. And then today you're going to walk out of here going, oh, I can't believe that church, talking about loving people, what a bunch of liberals. All right, so if you've gone on either side of those coins, 
Jesus is for you. Um, he is going to make you mad one way or another, and you will not pull up a comfortable chair to his table with any political platform. So I was excited to get out of May, and then we rocked straight into this. And here's the thing, we love the idea of this, don't we? We love the idea of not responding with violence, but to respond with love. Um, but we also, everyone, everyone on every side of the aisle tends to do a whole lot of dancing around this issue when it becomes applicable, uh, when it's applicable and when it's not, right? Well, uh, yeah, I know this, but, but, like I've heard this yelled at people. Love your enemies, idiot. Like, okay. Uh, so we will say things, Christians will say things um, about following Jesus and we'll dance around this one. We'll get this preached to us a lot as well from people that don't have any interest in Jesus in any of his other teachings, but man, do we love this one. Or we'll sit there and we'll be like, you know, I get it, what Jesus is saying here, but it's not just not realistic. As if anything Jesus calls us to do is realistic within our own power. Um, there's some statements after this that are going to require some deep thinking. Uh, I am always quick to caution. When we hear Jesus say something and our immediate is reaction is, well, yeah, but... Like, be aware of your yeah buts, right? How quick we are to do that. Well, but you gotta understand this. Jesus' words on the parts that we don't like, we still have to deal with them. And there's some statements that might, be, that might need to be evaluated coming out of Jesus' teaching here on, on these response. There's some things, there's some policies. I'm not gonna talk about public policies. I'm not gonna like advocate for anything. But there are some things that we're gonna have to wrestle with because Jesus deals both with public and private in all of these statements here. And there's like tough on crime, nuke them all. You can pry my gun from my cold dead fingers. So I'm not gonna advocate for any kind of public policy. I'm gonna draw attention to some few, a few things. I'm not going to necessarily say what, what, like, what this looks like, like what you can and can't do or what we should or shouldn't do. Um, so I, I will tell you over the last month, uh, it's been exhausting because there's a lot of weight in these issues. And if you haven't noticed, we don't do well on um, disagreeing with reason and understanding in our culture. Uh, we disagree with absolute venom. And you're not just in disagreement with me, you are evil. It's kind of how we go about this. So there's a lot of weight in walking through this. Um, so uh, today, with this one, I'm not going to like debate necessarily. We're going to let the words of Jesus say what they say. I'm going to give some personal observations, some thoughts. I'm going to read a story at the end. And then the reality is we're all going to have to stand before God on this and and say, this is how I heard your words and this was what my response was. Or maybe even more, this is what I've advocated for in life and how well do they flow with this. So let's start. Everybody ready? You excited with that caveat? Awesome. All right. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
This is called the Lex Talionis, all right? This is the second Latin phrase I know. Now, the Lex Talionis, I think it's Latin. The law of retribution. Now, this is not unique to the Bible. This is not unique to ancient uh, Israel faith. Um, This was part of ancient Babylon. This is essentially Roman law as well. Um, And the premise of Lex Talionis is this, that whatever crime you commit, the punishment should be commensurate with that crime. So, in the ancient days, if you were to steal something, what would be a fitting punishment? We cut off your hand. Now, how many of you believe, and we'll know, right, if you raise your hand and there's just a stub there, uh, (laughs) how many of you believe that this would be a pretty good deterrent from theft? I, yeah, yeah, right? Right? And then, like, not only would it be a good deterrent, you'd be like, hey, maybe I shouldn't steal that. Um, but also, like, if you were a store manager and, and you know, uh, somebody walked in with, with, you know, that their hand was obviously cut off, or J. Walter Weatherman, for those who, uh, who are in the know, comes into your store, you'd be like, keep my eye on that guy. All right, now we don't have the exact same system in our world, but it it is pretty close. Like think of a car accident, right? If somebody damages your car, the punishment is supposed to fit the crime. It's a financial punishment that pays for the damages to your car. Uh, And there are a few main goals with the Lex Talionis. Well, obviously one of them is to deter crime, to curb crime, so it's not just, so these are part of almost every ancient law code. Um, But it also prevents Vigilante retribution, right, by the victim. Uh, it, it does not allow for a disproportionate vengeance to occur, but a known and proper punishment that befits the crime. Uh, now, Jesus is not quoting simply wisdom of the day. This wasn't just like how this was interpreted. This is part of the Mosaic law. He's quoting directly from Scripture. In fact, he could be quoting from uh, Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, Deuteronomy 19, 21, and or some references to Genesis 9, 6, Exodus 21, 28 through 32, Leviticus 19, 18, Numbers 35, 31, and 32, Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12, and 32, verse 35, Judges 1, verses 6 through 7, 2 Samuel 4, 9 through 12, 1 Kings 20, verse 39, uh, and again in 42, Esther verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 10, Job 2, verse 4, Psalms 9 and 10, Proverbs 20, 22, uh, 24, verse 29, Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22, and Daniel 6, 19 through 24. He wasn't specific. Uh, there are certain applications of the ancient law for accidents versus what was intentional or what was just pure neglect. Something that was unique to the law of ancient Israel that was not necessarily found in other ancient laws, at least what was stated, now how it's practiced is another matter, but what was stated is that the law was to be applied equally. Uh, It was across the board to man and woman, again, what was stated, um, not necessarily what was always practiced, young and old, rich and poor. There were other ancient cultures that would provide some, you know, tax benefits if you were wealthy, if you were higher up in status, you could pay to get out of 
uh, out of problems, and you'll notice in our day what is a fine to the west of us and jail time to the east uh, is interesting application of that. Uh, something else that was very unique in the time of ancient Israel was uh, foreigners, outsiders, um, immigrants got the same treatment of the law as the people of Israel. They were treated the same. Now, you may think, well, shouldn't they get special treatment? No, 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 no. They didn't get worse treatment. That's the point. Everybody was subject to the same lex talionis, right? Everybody was subject to the same. It was not, you didn't remove them, and immigrants could not just be charged without reason. They, had, they, they got the benefits of the same law, which was unheard of. It was unheard of. There were also some provisions within the law in Deuteronomy that mentions uh, where parents are not necessarily punished for the crimes of their grown children once a, children got, a child got to a certain age, but also children that went without parents, there was actually some special provision of applying the law with grace because they did not have somebody to teach them obedience. And that's actually within the law of Deuteronomy. So the overall, the main thrust of the Lex Talionis from Scripture was that it was to be applied equally, without prejudice. And Deuteronomy 19 talks about the penalties of these laws, that they were meant to purge evil from their midst, right? To deter crime. So in, in Leviticus 19, verse 20, we have a famous, uh, well, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. I don't know what, what crime that, what, I don't know. Anyway, but this is what he said. This is what the law of Moses says. The eye shall not pity. Inferring the eye shall not pity the one who has done evil. Go back to Matthew 5. Jesus continues to go. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. As time progressed, some of the more barbaric methods of this took on a lesser tone. So in other words, you wouldn't get your hand cut off, you would get fined. Right? That, that would be how that had progressed over time. Uh, it moved away from some of the barbaric uh, things. Uh, murder was still life for a life in a lot of places. And some other sins or other uh, culturally varied elements still had uh, intense punishment. But it mostly moved to financial compensation. But what Jesus does here is totally different. This is distinctly not lex talionis. It is not a form of retribution. It's a form of non-resistance. Jesus is not simply reinterpreting the Mosaic law here, but it feels like he's almost reversing it in some ways, undoing it, correcting it, I mean, maybe we can say he's, he's putting it in the hands of the Father, the ultimate judge. 
But this is the strange and bewildering messianic ethic of Jesus on display. It's the ethic from beyond. Now, that said, there are plenty of passages that infer this. So it's not totally new, even throughout the, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. Leviticus 19.18, where we get the second most important commandment, says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isaiah actually puts this on pretty profound display in Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I had not my face from disgrace, I hide not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and therefore I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. So we can see here that this is not totally a foreign concept of what Jesus is, is bringing to play here. The one, when Jesus says, do not, turn, do not resist the evil one, he's not talking about Satan, okay? He is talking about the one who does an act of evil, an act of violence, the perpetrator. So uh, previously, the Mosaic law would very distinctly say, would call for no pity in their punishment. But Jesus' words seem to call for quite a bit of pity, quite a bit of grace. Paul later translates this in his great chapter to the Romans in verse, chapter 12 by telling us, to not be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. Uh, N.T. Wright translates verse 39 as don't use violence to resist evil. And then Jesus goes through some very specific ways that this non-resistance is to take place. And just so you know, and, I, and I'm not making too much of this, but there's a debate that says, is this public or private? Jesus is gonna deal with the courts. He's gonna deal with the state. He's gonna deal with uh, those above you in Stat in status and those below you in status. So he's pretty much going to cover everything, public and private. This is what he said. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, it's considered most people in history are right-handed. And this is not my time to take up the defense of us left-handed people. Uh, this presumption, uh, and I feel unfair judgment, we'll save that for another time. But to slap somebody with an open hand would be to hit them on the left cheek. So to hit them on the right cheek would be like this. It's a backhand. It's derogatory. It is, it is completely undignifying. And it would be done by somebody who is higher in status than you to slap you, to backhand you on the right cheek. Um, right? And, and when you think about it, it's an absolute form of disrespect. I mean, you punch somebody, and, and that's potential violence. To slap somebody is mean, but to backhand, it's more than just, like, it, it probably doesn't even hurt as much, but just it is so, like, looking down. It is so demeaning. The Mishnah, which is the kind of the commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures that rabbis would continue to uh, adapt and offer their input over time and history. 
This is one of the laws, the interpretations of this law that were updated with fines. Everything is in accord with one's station. If he smacked him, he pays him 200 zuz. No idea what that is. I think, I guess it's a denomination of money. Um, but if, he, if it is with the back of the hand, he pays him 400 zuz. So a backhand was an incredible insult that was twice as much when it comes to retribution. And so what does Jesus say here? Your dignity has been totally and absolutely annihilated and put down. What does Jesus say to do? Play the martyr, claim persecution, post a nasty meme about them on Facebook, tell your friends, start rumors, talk about how you're the bigger person, pull out your conceal and carry, see who's slapping now. Jesus says, give them the other cheek as well. If someone takes you to court for a reason that's not stated and wants to take your tunic, uh, so the tunic and the, the, the cloak and the tunic, this is the, the equivalent of like a shirt and a jacket, right? The, the tunic was used for uh, a pillow and a blanket and sometimes even a belt. And then your cloak was like a long t-shirt for men and also underwear, PJs, and like there's nothing between you and the world but this cloak. And to, you could take somebody else's tunic for a period of time, but it could not be extended because this was essential for living. So it was, it was not totally unusual to, uh, to hear this, um, but this is literally the taking a shirt off a man's back, hence the idiom. What Jesus advocates here goes well beyond social custom. He gives the person not only your robe, but literally strips naked in front of them and hands them. Now, keep in mind, this, Jesus is, is using these as illustrations here. But his point being, you want this, I will, here's, take everything. Take everything. You want to sue me for this, and I will give you everything I have. Another social custom that involves the Roman military Roman military had the rights to requisition somebody who was in an oppressive state. So any, anybody that Rome had power over, they could requisition you out of nowhere to help them carry things for up to a mile or however long a mile was in that day. I'm sure that's been updated. Um, I think they used the metric system in, that, in, uh, the, ancients, in the ancient world. Um, you could requisition to walk with you for a certain period of a distance and like to help them carry a load. Any soldier could come up to you. So this is the state, right? Uh, and Jesus says, calls his followers not only to carry them one mile, but go two miles. Now, the passionate religious zealots of the day were known for their violent resistance to these type of oppressive systems. And Jesus does not call for violent rebellion against authorities, but for subversive love in the face of evil. And finally, Jesus, this is not just responding to people above you in status, people that have some kind of authority over you. Jesus addresses beggars. And if someone asks for, you, for money for you, Jesus calls his followers not only to give generously, but also not to require repayment and certainly not charge interest. Again, the messianic ethic of Jesus, the ethic that is from beyond, 
Um, and it's kind of hard to disseminate when we try to give it any kind of earthly language. Jesus is not telling us to be passive, necessarily. In, in trying to think through, like, how do you explain this? Because he's not, so th- this is the way that I, that I thought. It, Jesus is not telling us to sit down and take it. Jesus is telling us to stand up and take it. He does not advocate for passivity. He commands that we retaliate to evil with active love. There's two main sources that kind of fuel this ethic from beyond, two things that we can kind of take comfort in. One, God is the ultimate judge. He judges the heart. Vengeance will be his, so we do not need to exact vengeance. We are called to show love. And why? Because the second thing that fuels this is because when we become peacemakers, we bear the image of Jesus. We become like our Father who is in heaven. We endure suffering, we don't cause it. When Jesus calls us to respond with defiant grace and mercy, and this is hard, and I think it takes incredible faith. All right. So, the whatabouts, the yeah buts, Is this a private issue or a public issue? Well, Jesus mentions public affairs. He mentions private affairs. He mentions the courts. What about wars? What about guns? I don't know. History has debated this idea of just war while in the other room providing care for the outsider and the marginalized. I will tell you that I know lots of soldiers who will advocate to you that war is far worse than any hell they could imagine. What about traditional tough on crime versus more progressive types of approach to dealing with crime? I don't know. Crime rates in our world are actually, in America, are way down from the 90s. They're way down from the 90s and most research shows that the 90s was more due to a population boom than, than anything else. Uh, murder rates went back up in 2020, although they weren't, they, they're still not even close to what they were in the 90s, but they went way back up. Um, and cities with conservative uh, prosecutors and cities with progressive prosecutors actually had, essentially there's no difference in the crime rates. There's been extensive research on that. Those, them's just facts. It's no political statement there. You have just war, and that, some have argued that there is, there is a time for the necessity of war, but then at w- what are those times? And to what end? And what's the ultimate cost? What about loving your neighbor? What about defending the weak and the young? To what end are we to defend ourselves? And here's the nature of the human heart. If we were to define, if we were to give like specific lines in the sand and say, it's this right here and this is what you can go up to, the nature of the human heart is to go, right. You know, but, but there's some exceptions to that. 
Like, we'll find ways. We're creative at finding ways for self-justification when, when we want to. Here's the hardest one for me. I mean, what I meant to say was this is completely hypothetical. 12-year-old punk kid walks out in front of your car, like slowly as you're driving through your neighborhood and deliberately walks slowly while you're driving. You, everybody knows this kid, right? And yes, well, first, yes, Jesus absolutely confronts my vision of justice on this issue. I think you get two warnings and then it's fair game. Here's the thing, there is evil in this world. You better believe that there is evil in this world. And this, this real, like we wanna treat it like this gives this nice clean way of dealing with evil in the world. I mean, this is not an A plus B equals C. This is not a do this and then this will always happen. Remember, what happens with Jesus? It doesn't give a neat solution to the depths of evil. It's not a formula to stop bad things from happening. Jesus did not spill the blood of others, but that did not stop his own blood from being spilled. History is replete with contradictions. The oppressed rising to power to become the oppressors. That is all throughout history. When you win with hate, simply fuels more hatred. And the church at times has been a great and terrible example of this. And simultaneously, like I, I was saying earlier, simultaneously while building orphanages, orphanages and hospitals and caring for the weak and poor and literally in the next room trying to come up with a theory of just war to go to war against Islam. And if you've read the internet and you're like, ah, see, Christianity is evil because the war against Islam, let me encourage you that it's a lot more complicated than that, okay? I know we are, we're all just inundated with how horrible Christianity is. You read some of Celtic history, read some other history, like, trust me, the world is evil. There's a lot. You had another beautiful moment in history where the church uses the treasury of the church to feed all of Rome, Christian and non-Christian alike, from, the tr from, their, from their own money during, the, during a plague. And then two popes later, the Roman army had kind of, with that move, had kind of come over the, under the auspices of the church. And then two popes later, the Roman army is used to coerce and force all the Jews in the empire to be baptized or else. It's complex. But don't think it's just religion. This is the heart of humanity. Maximilian Robespierre, right? We've talked about him before. I know everybody's a big fan. He, he influenced a whole lot of our current policy, due process of law. He was radically against the death penalty. They called him Max the Incorruptible. And how do we make these, how do we make these policies, how do we assure that these policies take root for the working man, for, the, for those who are pushed to the side? Well, sometimes you just gotta take matters into your own hands. And Max the Incorruptible also became responsible for the reign of terror where in like three months he put 30 to 50,000 people to death without due process 
in the streets, many of them by guillotine, because we want freedom and we want due process of law. Be careful how committed we are to a certain narrative. I'm against the death penalty, and to get it accomplished, we might just have to put 30 to 50,000 people to death. By the way, not a Christian, not particularly religious. I think he did try to create his own religion. But very progressive, unless we think that only one side is, is guilty here. The nature of man is to fight evil with evil. But it's an evil that we've justified. It's an evil that we've said, yeah, but our evil is good because their evil is worse. This seems to happen when we attach movements and hashtags to things. I've heard some very, very, very hateful rhetoric spewed from Christians, Christian pastors in the name of Jesus. And then I've heard some hateful rhetoric spewed back at Christians in the name of love wins. But guys, our hate is justified. Our side is justified. Some people think Jesus wasn't being practical with this statement because somehow he was unaware of just how brutal and violent the world can be. Let me assure you to read history. Jesus knew how brutal and violent the world could be. He was under Roman oppression. He got it. Jesus is giving the command to his followers to respond to evil with love. Bonhoeffer puts it this way. Evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object, no resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered and then evil meets an opponent for which it has no match. Martin Luther King talked about this in his famous sermon that I should probably wait to quote next week on loving your enemies. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. So here's the reality. Christianity is not like a religion for pacifists. That's not the point here. A heart that responds to evil with love simply cannot be part of like a religion because we will do what is necessary to accomplish that religion. The transformation only happens when a violent heart has been responded to with love. Jesus was the strongest man that ever existed. He was strong enough not to react to violence with violence, but to stare straight into the heart of our own wickedness and say, Father, forgive them. I'm going to finish with a story. But just as we get into this, uh, Jesus is not advocating cowardice. It is strong it, you have to be strong to stand there and resist. This is not backing down in fear. It is standing up with grace and mercy. And it's actually, I would say, not non-resistant. I would suggest it's incredibly resistant. But it's resisting whatever the cost not to return evil with evil. Especially, especially when we feel justified. Justified. 
This is a story about Jared McKenna. He's an Australian activist. He's a follower of Jesus. And this is the story about how he became so passionate about nonviolent resistance. All right, so I'm going to read for a minute, but I think it's engaging. And I'm not going to read with an Australian accent. I was 18. It was my first year in university studying fine arts. I was coming back on the train, and I had been reading Martin Luther King Jr. for the first time. I got off at Warwick train station. I was walking over the overpass bridge away from the train station, and in my typical ADD dreamland state, I thought of Dr. King's talk of the nonviolent resistance of the earthly Christian, early Christians. I had hardly noticed the big guy in the dark tracksuit with his sleeves rolled up walking toward me. Still a couple meters off, he loudly grunting, grunted something at me. I missed what he said. A little shocked to have Jared's dream world interrupted, I quickly tried to piece together what he had said. I definitely heard the word money. Thinking he asked for a few bucks to catch the train, I got my wallet out. Bad move. Lunging at me with his fist clenched, another hand reaching for something in his pocket, he yelled, give me your money. He actually said a sentence along those lines with words that you can't say in front of your mom in the mix. And at that point, a number of things went through my mind, including some other words that you can't say in front of your mom. A number of things flashed through my head that years later Walter Wink would put into words for me with such clarity. The split option, flight. The only thing about running was I was wearing my backpack with all my art equipment in it, and if I ran, this would make my getaway at best a fast waddle. Not to mention he's huge. Or the hit option, fight. Only, as I mentioned earlier, he's huge. Maybe I could get one cheap shot in, and if he wants to have kids, he'll have to adopt. More likely, I take a shot at him, and then he's unaffected, like, a machine, like the machine in the Terminator movie, and then transforms me, better than to choose an art student as his victim. <laughs> I'm still not sure why, but I, simply didn't, I didn't simply hand over the money. I stuck out my hand and said, I'm Jared. Wide-eyed, wide-eyed, and with mouth open, he grabbed my hand and grunted, James. Surprised and confused, I said, no, no, Jared. To which he, surprised to match mine, said, no, I'm James. <laughs> oh. Awkward pause. This is by far the weirdest passing of the piece I'd ever been involved with. <laughs> I noticed his arm. The bruising ran all along it, interrupted only by the scarring that revealed, that rivaled a pincushion. Dad, come in. Sorry. I can't wear glasses and tear up at the same time. <laughs> Crap. That's where I get violent in my reaction. James' arm was offered to me like an icon in an Orthodox worship service to contemplate the depth of his pain and all the desperate attempts to escape it. Couldn't have been more than a couple years older than me and the next thing that hit me was the stench, like stale urine mixed with cigarettes. We stood on the bridge suspended above the freeway. James launched into his life story at a pace to rival the cars passing below. His words seemed to overtake each other and then cut each other off. He said he was sorry to be doing this to me, that he was in a bad way. He'd been doing really well he was on a uh, naltrexine program, getting off the stuff, but then his mom kicked him out of the home again. 
Now he's back on the street. I asked him to come back to my house and, have, and eat and have a shower, get a change of clothes, and I tried to find him a new place to stay. Another awkward pause. And then through the middle of us, both on the bridge, darted a young woman in another black tracksuit with a bag under her arm yelling, go, 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 we gotta go. At the time, I didn't know if she had, was being hassled by security guards at the train station or if she had stolen the bag, but it was clear that she knew James and wanted to get out of there fast. Wait, James, before you go. I shuffled in my backpack, passed my art gear and textbooks to reach in and grab the little New Testament I always carry with me. It's got my name and number in it if you ever change your mind about a place to stay. For the first time since I was staring at this big guy's fist, it got ugly again. James right up, got right up in my face and started yelling, what do I need a Bible for? I'm going to hell. His face contorted with anger that had an intensity that explained his arm. Without even thinking, I found myself saying, James, we're all going to hell. That's why Jesus came. I know that statement rates low on the theological wow scale and maybe embarrassingly high on the theological cringe factor, but it's what I said. What happened next, I think, was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. This big guy who only moments earlier was ready to beat me up, if not worse, just started crying. And I'm not talking one tear sad movie crying. He burst out crying like a little kid does. Suddenly this pain that was so visible in his anger, on his scarred arms and in his situation seemed to burst like a floodgate at the news of God's love for him. And this big guy stood there crying. I honestly didn't know what to do. In the same way that my response had put him off balance, James' tears now totally threw me. I just stood there while his head hung. His shoulders heaved and he wept. James didn't say anything more to me. He snorted to try to stop the snot and tears, grabbed the Bible and started running. After a few paces, he turned, looked me in the eye, waved the Bible at me and nodded and kept running. I stood a long moment on the bridge, stunned. I picked up my bag a bit dazed and continued along the overpass. As I neared the end of the bridge, I saw his female accomplice jump into an already crowded, beaten up maroon VK Holden Commodore sedan. As she got in, she yelled over the music to the others. I got a bag! James run up and get it as he got in the car, yelled over the music. I, I got a Bible! <laughs> and they piled in and drove off. And I walked right past my bus stop. I just kept walking. James taught me that there is nothing that shows the world what God is like more clearly than when we love our enemies. Despite the reality that throughout the New Testament, the cross is not only how God saves us, it is how we witness to that salvation. I am aware that enemy love still scandalizes many a fundamentalist and liberal alike. Who wants a savior who loves the enemies that we want to kill? Who wants a witness to witness to the God whose love falls like rain on the just and the unjust alike? Who wants a God who longs to heal those who have hurt us so that they hurt no more? Who wants a Christ who comes to us in the pain that we want to run from? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have come to the hurting and the broken, not to the, those of us who all have everything put together, who are fine. 
Thank you that you do not respond to our violent and angry hearts. So may we shut up. Quit trying to self-justify and collapse into the arms of our beloved Savior and experience grace and healing and be made new. May our response to the world not be a strategy of how to win the city for anything. May it not be a religious movement that has a hashtag. May it not be some kind of political nonsense. May we respond because we have met this glorious Savior who could love even me. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.